Good morning. Some of you will remember, old enough to remember this, but in 1969, NASA pulled off the incredible feat of landing three men on the moon. And one of the three astronauts that went along for the ride, named Michael Collins, said this, all this is possible only through the blood, sweat, and tears of thousands of people. All you see are the three of us, but underneath the surface are thousands According to, to author Catherine Temish, there were about 400,000 people who helped with the Apollo 11 mission. She wrote a book, actual liftoff, but uh, Catherine wrote a book called Team Moon. And in that book, she shares the stories of a lot of these hidden heroes uh, spacesuits, seamstress radio telescope operators, parachute designers, and others who make it possible to actually get men to the moon, get them home, and let the entire world watch while all of this happens. So at the Kennedy Space Center, there were some 17,000 engineers, mechanics, soldiers, and contractors, and other workers, and it took all of them to set up this enormous missile that actually powered the then there were the two Bobs, two guys in Houston who were monitoring just how little fuel was left in the lunar module during its descent to the surface. Team Moon also included a 24-year-old computer whiz kid named Jack Garman, who helped work through worrisome computer glitches during the Eagle's landing. All of the computer code that ran all of the systems was developed by a team of software engineers at MIT, led by Margaret Roughly 500 people worked on the spacesuit, including one seamstress who commented, we didn't, too wor we didn't worry too much until the guys on the moon started jumping up and down. That gave us a little bit of an eyebrow twitch. Well, when we think of the Apostle Paul, we tend to do so in the singular, which may sort of think or lead us to believe that Paul was kind of a one-man band, similar to Bert, Jimmy Sweet, and Mary Poppins. But Paul was anything but that, and had obviously built a number of pretty impressive ministry teams as he traveled around the area, spreading the good news about the kingdom. And so as we continue looking at Paul's letter to the Philippians today, we're going to encounter some members we're going to see some of the characteristics that made them so successful. So if you want to follow along in your Bible, we're, we're in 
letter to the Philippians, chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. We'll have it up on the screen as well. So Philippians 2, verses 19 through 30. By birth, I know Starting at verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven work, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with him. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother, my fellow worker, and fellow soldier, your messenger and minister to my youth, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, nearly to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow and sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may so receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor to such men, for he merely died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now, I think I can say with a lot of confidence that I know Paul did not set out to write in this particular section of Philippians about ministry to me. But the importance of them becomes apparent as you sort of read through this section of scripture. So the, sort of the main idea that we're going to focus on today comes not so much from what Paul is saying, but what is implied by what he's saying. And it's this. Successful ministry, successful ministry teams, requires the right team characteristics. Successful ministry requires the right team as I mentioned earlier in discussing what has been going on with, with himself and with Timothy and Epaphroditus, he gives us several examples of the characteristics required to have ministry teams that ultimately are successful. So let's look at these. The first one is characteristic selflessness. You look at verse 19 uh, through 21 for that, where it says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. We can define selflessness uh, in a couple of different ways. First of all, it's having little or no concern for oneself, especially with regard to fame, position, money, etc. And then we can also define it as having or showing great concern for other people, and little or no concern for yourself. <coughs> Coach Scotty Kessler says this, selfishness destroys, but selflessness builds. It's a simple distinction, but it's one that can be the difference between success and failure for any team, whether it's an athletic team, a team in business, or a ministry team. It takes just one selfish person drag the whole thing down. 
In other words, members of a good team must understand the importance of putting shared goals ahead of any personal goals. Kind of a trite saying, but you know that's true, and that is that there is no I in team. A Duke's legendary basketball coach, Mike Krzyzewski, puts it this way. To me, teamwork is the beauty of our sport. When you have five acting as one, you become So from the basketball court to the corporate office to the church to the mission field, selflessness plays a critical role. And in order to function as a team, each team member has got to put aside any personal agendas and work towards the common goal of the common good. Now sometimes this is easier said than done, especially when we sort of look at today's society, which sort of centers around the idea of, well, how does this benefit? You know what? That societal attitude is not new. Both the great philosophers and the Old Testament prophets complained about the scarcity of those who were fully devoted to the cause. And then we have King Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes saying this What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under. And so the selfish attitude that we bemoan today is the same selfish attitude Paul bemoaned a couple of thousand years ago. Paul says that he had no one else quite like me. The words no one else in the Greek are literally no one of equal soul. That's because Timothy had a genuine interest and a spiritual concern for the Christians that were at Philippi. And sadly, the apostle says that when he thinks of the others around him who he might send, finds the cupboard bare. In other words, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Now, we don't know this at all, but it's certainly possible that Paul had spoken to some other people about taking this trip to Philippi on his behalf, but all of them were more concerned for their own interests than doing the work of Christ. Or, Paul may not have been indicting his fellow Christians, rather he may just have been reflecting on the state of a selfish world where truly selfless people are hard to find. Probably the most likely explanation is that Paul was just using some hyperbole. He could not have meant that Luke and Titus and the other disciples that he was personally associated with only cared for Rather, he was sort of trying to say that Timothy cared so deeply that his concern, that others' concern, if there was any, would pale by comparison to how deeply Timothy felt towards his church. And while many other believers might express concern, too often they're too preoccupied with their own activities to act on that concern. Timothy was concerned for the Philippians' welfare. But he was willing to act on that concern by dropping whatever it was he was doing and going from Rome and making this lengthy and very tiring trip to Philippi. And once in Philippi, not unlikely that he would have had to deal with certain problems that the church might have encountered. Certainly not an enviable task. 
Timothy's willingness to go to Philippi reveals the spirit that he carried of selfless service. He was a man who exemplified the idea of what it means to put others' interests ahead of his own. Really, if you sort of stop and analyze what was going on here, Paul exhibited a spirit of selflessness as well in, in his concern for the Philippian believers. And he demonstrated, actually acted out of that in sending Timothy to them. Now, Timothy was obviously very close to Paul. He refers to him as a son numerous times, very dear to his heart. And you would have to think, if Paul ever really needed Timothy, it was probably at this point when he was under house arrest uh, in Rome. But he was still willing to give up Timothy. And the companionship that he offered and all of the other things that I'm sure was able to serve Paul in doing. And he did that so that these others could be helped. And so Paul is now sort of holding Timothy up as an example of the attitudes that he's urged the Philippians themselves to adopt. An attitude which was supremely shown in Jesus himself. Timothy's learned through the gospel, the art of putting others before himself. And he's thereby fit not only to speak but also to stand as a model for the people. Timothy outstripped almost all in his devotion to the Lord Jesus. Now, this certainly did not include Epaphroditus, who we're going to talk about in a moment, because he, as well, put Jesus first. But the general run of Christians, as Paul saw them, put themselves first and Jesus second. Timothy had something else that was sort of part of his selfless character, and that was that he had an ungrudging acceptance of second place, sort of as the son of the father. You know, Paul has tried in some of his writings to sort of soften that relationship by placing himself alongside Timothy and doing the work that they were there doing. But even then, Timothy's subordinate place is clear. So in terms of slavery, was to be second in command. Everything that he was ready for. He never tried to usurp Paul's authority or do anything uh, other than just be a faithful, selfless servant, whatever Paul needed him to do. And as I said earlier, what Paul saw then is still true today. Few come to the help of the Lord's cause for comfort, fame, or gain. Many help when Christ's gain is compatible with their own. A Jesus follower, a true Jesus follower, displays selfless devotion to Jesus by seeking the true welfare of other people. It really couldn't be any other way. For Jesus himself displayed his total obedience to God by pouring himself out wholly for others. It's always a challenge for us to consider whether we have that genuine interest in other people, or whether we want other people to come serve our interests. But as Paul clearly shows us, to be successful, ministry team members must possess the character traits of others. So next, our verse of scripture will put you up And this goes to verse 25, where Paul writes, I have thought it necessary 
whom you have forgotten my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister in my name. A teamwork we can really define as a cooperative and coordinated effort on the part of a group of persons acting together as a team or in the interest of a common cause. As selflessness is an important part of that, so is teamwork. So is this idea of working together. Because when we do that, we can apply, you know, variety of skills to any particular problem. We can solve complex problems that really take more than just one single mind. And this really sort of accentuates this idea that the fact that there were 400,000 people all told working on that one. And that's an amazing number of people. And the fact that they actually pulled this off within the time frame that President Kennedy was given was really nothing short of amazing. So, many good, many good minds on a problem it generates new ideas. Uh, we coordinate just individual activities and point them towards an individual goal. Uh, enhances communication, generates commitment. All of these things are part of working together as a team. And so, having mentioned Jesus, having mentioned himself, and having mentioned Timothy as an example. Paul now refers to someone who the Philippians knew very well. Epaphroditus was one of their own. And so, with Timothy and himself unable to immediately go to them, Paul sends another member of his family, this time Epaphroditus as well. Now, as I said, he was a member of that church. He's the guy that had delivered the, if you can remember, the Philippians had put together a financial gift to bring to Paul. They needed to get it to him somehow. Well, Epaphroditus is the guy who apparently raised his hand and said, I'll do it. Okay, so he's the one that took the financial gift from Philippi to Paul in Rome. And then he chose to stay on in Rome and just kind of assist with whatever Paul was doing. So not only was he the Philippians' messenger, but he actually became a colleague of Paul's in the ministry that he was in. The Philippians had originally sent him for Paul's needs, now Paul's sending him back to really care for the church. And I think it's important to notice the closeness that is involved in this, because Paul uses the words brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier. Now, you don't want to just grasp at straws and look at these little indications that are, are written here and, and magnify them into something that's not there. We don't want to go overboard with this. Um, but nonetheless, these descriptions point to somebody who obviously was willing to do it in spite of this. If he'd been quarrelsome or nagging, restless, ready to pick out people's faults, quick to criticize others. In Christian charity, we might have still called him a worker and a soldier. But I doubt seriously he would have been awarded the titles of fellow worker and fellow soldier. Many followers of Jesus are great workers and soldiers, and they work hard and earnestly in the cause of Jesus, but not all work well with their fellows. It's a truly sad fact that many Jesus followers do not always love one another, nor are we always ready to acknowledge one another as fellow
fellow workers and fellow citizens. We sometimes look on each other with suspicion. We stay aloof, fearful of guilt by association with those purchased by the same precious price. We refuse to pray with those who call upon the same precious name. There are followers of Jesus who begrudge the gifts that God has given to others and are afraid that praise rightfully deserved for a brother or sister might threaten their own prestige. All too often, self-concern dulls our hearts and the church. Our eagerness is sometimes directed to self-advancement, and our anxiety diminishes only as our personal security returns. We're all symptoms. The apostolic standard, which is the standard of Jesus, is a target that we have not yet reached, and one which we are not always concerned, even when addressed. Now, in relation to others, Epaphroditus was marked by the fellowship he offered to them by placing his gift at the disposal of the church and by his concern with the gift. In short, he was a good teammate, putting forth a cooperative effort enacting the best interest of the common cause, which was the spread of the gospel and the building up of the church. So we have selflessness and teamwork, both as essential characteristics. And to those, we're now going to add a third, and that's sacrifice. And for sacrifice, we refer to verses 29 and 30 in the text, which are, So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now, if you take team in the purest sense of the word, a team is not something you join. You join an organization. You become part of the team. And becoming a team requires sacrifice. And I think uh, one of the best quotes I could find by one was one by Michael said this, there are plenty of teams in every sport that have great players who never win titles. Most of the time, those players aren't willing to sacrifice for the greater good of the team. The funny thing is, in the end, their unwillingness to sacrifice only makes individual goals more difficult to achieve. One thing I believe to the fullest is that, is that if you think and achieve as a team, the individual accolades will take Talent wins games, teamwork, and intelligence wins championships. When someone is committed to something, he or she is willing to sacrifice in order for that endeavor to be a success, whatever it might be. So the vast majority of successful people, whether they're athletes, scholars, business owners, they didn't achieve the success because they were lucky. They didn't achieve that success because it just happened to in the right place at the right time, and they didn't achieve it necessarily because they weren't born into it. They got to where they are because they understood that you can't realize a goal without sacrifice. And their sacrifice is ultimately rewarded. And so Paul clearly wants to make sure that is the case with Epaphroditus. He realized that there was a possibility that the Philippian church 
might misunderstand why he's sending Aphrodite back to them. So he, he was trying to make sure that they, they weren't going to be critical of him when he, when he returned. They, you know, the, the thought may be, well, you know, Paul's in a tough situation, and Aphrodite is just bailing you know, on, on Paul. And, and really not even completing the mission that they sent him on in the first place. So he's commanding the Philippians to welcome and honor him for the sacrificial service that he put forth for Jesus. And so they don't, he doesn't want them to see Epaphroditus just as this sick weakling who, who failed to do what he was sent out to do. No, on the, on the contrary, in Paul's eyes, he was a hero. Paul says that Epaphroditus nearly died. We don't know how that happened. Maybe he simply by identifying himself with Paul that did not go well for him. Maybe he you know, became ill during the journey and practically killed himself in trying to complete this mission while he was still basically unfit to do so. He should have been resting and taking it easy and trying to recover yet he pushed himself to make sure that he did complete uh, what the church had asked him. Whatever the situation was, he was clearly willing to sacrifice his own well-being for the task that had been given to him. And if that weren't enough, Paul reminds the Philippians that the risks that Epaphroditus took were not just to fulfill his own calling, but they were so that he might help the entire church at Philippi complete the task that they had. Because they had not been able to complete it in his absence. And so Paul is praising both Epaphroditus as an individual minister and the entire church for the faithfulness that they had in carrying out God's mission and in fulfilling Christ's purpose for them. And he calls on the Philippian church to receive this brother with warm hearted Christian welcome, not just as one of their own who's returned from abroad, but as one to be highly honored the faithfulness and the costliness of the service that he's given. The honor that Paul calls the church at Philippi to give Epaphroditus is due to the sacrificial service he had rendered to the Lord, to Paul, and to the church at Philippi. And it's people who are willing to sacrifice for Jesus, like Epaphroditus, who are worthy of the honor and I think I've talked about this book before, but a book that I read some time ago called The Boys in the Boat. And it tells the story of how nine underdog working class boys from Washington State upset, first of all, the elite rowers of the Ivy League, and then went on to defeat Adolf Hitler's rowers to win the gold medal at the 1936 World Olympics. Their whole strategy depended on the very characteristics that we have been discussing. Selflessness, teamwork, and sacrifice. The author of the story, David James Brown, described a thing that sometimes happens in rowing. It's really hard to achieve, and it's probably even harder to find. And it's something called swing. Now this is a picture of the actual finish of the gold medal race in the 1936 Olympics. And you can see the U.S. boat is towards the top of now, I do remember from reading the book that that was the absolute worst lane for them to be in. Because I guess the turbulence.
so they had to not only overcome the other teams, but their, their conditions were far less ideal than everyone else who was growing that particular abstract. And this thing that the author was talking about is called swing. And he says it only happens when all eight oarsmen are rowing in such perfect unison that no single action by any one is out of sync with those of everyone else. Sixteen arms must begin to pull. Sixteen knees must begin to fold at one point. Eight bodies must begin to slide forward and backward. Eight backs must bend and straighten at once. Each minute action, each subtle turning of wrist, must be mirrored exactly by each oarsman from one end of the boat only then, only when that perfect balance is reached, that the boat will continue to run fluidly and gracefully between the constant action of pulling the water. It's only then will the boat feel this is actually a hard picture, moving as if it's on its own. It's only then that pain entirely gives away to a feeling of exaltation. And rowing Crew's mentor, a man named George Pocock, explained to the rowers what he called the spiritual value of rowing as the losing of self entirely to the cooperative effort of the crew as a whole. He explained the strange wonder of how, in the moment you are most selflessly sacrificing yourself for others, that you also begin to most fully be yourself, to be more fully alive. George added, when you're rowing well, you're nearing perfection. And when you're near perfection, perfection is around you. So I would ask you today, and maybe not even so much in the sense of a ministry moment, although that truly is important, but do these characteristics embody your life and work. You know, as you go, as you serve your family, or as you serve in your job, or whatever it is that you do in, uh, in your day-to-day life, are you doing it with a sense of selflessness, being a good member of the team, sacrificing for the benefit of others? What we're called to do is Remember that there was someone who sacrificed literally everything on behalf of people that he did not even know. People who were sick and infected and even dangerous. He calls on us to do the same thing. So, like I said, take some time this week. That's the case. Whatever it is that you're you know, putting your hand to in that particular moment, you know, are you doing that with those characteristics in, in your mind? Or are there some other things that are sort of coming in and getting in the way of that that you need to be moving out 
you're not there yet, that's okay. We're all in this journey. We're all trying to get to the same place. We're all different places on the path. And that's okay. That's the way God designed it. So, you know, if it's something that you're struggling with, and you need to talk to somebody else about it, and you know, just as a family can do. God who heard him directly from heaven. And now it's time to sing. To sing about it. So during this phase of our service, we really want to open it up so that you can have that experience that if you are in need of healing in some form or fashion. Uh, we're going to have some people up here that are willing to pray for you. just want this part of our service every week to be devoted to that. Because it's not just about worshiping, it's not just about singing. Those things are truly important, so I'm not going to say that because they're not. But the experience of God as well is important too. And it's something that we believe can happen today still centuries ago in communion place in Philippi and Jerusalem and all of the places where you hear about this worship. So take advantage of, of these folks being up here. Uh, so I'm going to close this in a prayer and then uh, kind of free to do whatever you're going to do. Amy's going to be playing and continue on this particular choir of worship. She's going to come and prayer from any one of these attractive individuals that I have here. Um, hmm? Well, thank you. Um, or you can go home. That's what you want to do, too. I mean, it's entirely up to you. We really want this to be just your time. So, let's pray, and we'll sort of see where God goes from there. Father, we just thank you so much for your words to us through Paul, to the church of the Philippians. Thank you for the example that we have in Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus. And most importantly, Jesus. Just exactly. Father, I pray now that each of us would have a greater appreciation and have a greater sensitivity towards you in such a way that it not only informs our minds, but it informs our actions as well. That 
as we go about the things that we do every day. I don't know what to do. Maybe step into doing something that we would have left to someone else. We understand that there are not only all the accolades to be gained in this life, but that ultimately, when we come before you on judgment day, everything that we have done. So we know that nothing we've done is to his unrighteous So we thank you. Bless this gathering of followers and your sons right now. Bless them as they go forth from this time into the week ahead. We also thank you for the freedoms that we have as a citizen of this country. Bless each and everything that they put their hands to. And let them do each task a little more selflessly, a little more sacrificially.